Hello, everybody. I'm Danny Boom Boom McCarthy. To the Story of Nowhere podcast. This is going to be a big one, just barely in time for Christmas. At long last, the series on the utopian myth surrounding the British Empire is coming to a close. Though this is by no means the last you'll be hearing of the Empire on this show. This episode is one long conclusion to the series, but even as such, it took me a surprisingly long time to put together. In part one, I very quickly covered a ridiculously long stretch of history to prepare for the very short period that I covered in part two. Now, in part three, I'm covering a long stretch again. Not as long a stretch as in part one, but still a few centuries worth of history. It's just difficult to keep it concise sometimes, you know? Especially when some of this material demands some pretty in-depth coverage. But I think I did all right in this episode, keeping it short. But, of course, you can judge that for yourself. And, as always, be sure to play around with the show notes, 
at storyofnowhere.com slash Britannia3. There's a whole hell of a lot there for those of you who may want more detail on the subjects that I just breeze through today, especially in the more modern parts of the episode. So, if you think that maybe I'm making some outlandish claims about the attitudes and activities of some of the late imperialists, check out the source material before you send me angry emails. So I know I took my sweet time getting this episode out. Like I said, it was surprisingly difficult. But still, I do feel bad about taking so long. So to make it up to you, I'll just tell you now that the next two episodes will be coming out very soon. I've already told you what one of them is, and the other one, I'm going to keep a surprise. And speaking of surprises, I've got another surprise in the works for you all. That's two surprises. So make sure you're checking storyofnowhere.com regularly and that you're subscribed to the Story of Nowhere podcast on whatever you use to listen to podcasts. Finally, you can support my work by getting a really snazzy softcover edition of my book, The Story of Nowhere, at storyofnowhere.com slash book. And there it is. That's the intro. Without further ado, let's get into the show and shut this series down. Merry Christmas. and Utopia, The Rise and Rule of Britannia, Part 3, Progress, A Confession of Faith. Prelude Up then, go on as you have begun, leave to posterity an imperishable monument of your name and fame, such as age will never obliterate. For to posterity no greater glory can be handed down than to conquer the barbarian, to recall the savage and the pagan to civility, to draw the ignorant within the orbit of reason, and to fill with reverence for divinity the godless and the ungodly. Richard Hecklute to Walter Raleigh, 1587 
They at their own adventures, costs, and charges, as well for the honor of this our realm of England, as for the increase of our navigation, the advancement of trade and merchandise, within our said realms and the dominions of the same, might adventure and set forth one or more voyages, with convenient number of ships and pinnaces, by way of traffic and merchandise to the East Indies, in the countries and parts of Asia and Africa, and to as many of the islands, ports and cities, towns and places thereabouts, as where trade and traffic may by all likelihood be discovered, established, or had, diverse of which countries, and many of the islands, cities, and ports thereof, have long since been discovered by others of our subjects, albeit not frequented in trade of merchandise. Know ye therefore that we, tendering the honor of our nation, the wealth of our people, and the encouragement of them, and others of our loving subjects in their good enterprises, for the increase of our navigation, and the advancement of lawful traffic, to the benefit of our commonwealth, have of our especial grace, certain knowledge, and mere motion, given and granted by these presents for us, our heirs and successors, do give the grant unto our said loving subjects, before in these presents expressly named, that they and every one of them from henceforth be, and shall be one, body, corporate, and politic, in deed and in name. Charter by Queen Elizabeth I, founding the British East India Company, 1600. We have rather undertaken the patronage than the empire of the world. A commonwealth, I say, of this make is a minister of God upon earth, to the end that the world may be governed with righteousness. For which cause, that I may come at length unto our present business, the orders last rehearsed are buds of empire, such as, with the blessing of God, may spread the arms of your commonwealth like an holy asylum unto the distressed world, and give the earth her Sabbath of years or rest from her labors under the shadow of your wings. The Commonwealth of Oceana by James Harrington, 1656 Chapter 1 Britannia, a life. A myth is a cultural narrative which explains and or justifies why things are the way they are. Myths make sense. To summarize what's already been covered in this series, as well as what still remains to be covered, I'll engage in a little quasi-myth-making of my own. I only hope that this birthing metaphor makes Sense. The long mating ritual which preceded the creation of the British Empire began perhaps as far back as Julius Caesar's invasion of Britain in 55 BC and lasted until AD 1546. This was covered in part one of this series. Who were the parents in this awkward dance? It's hard to say. But the best contenders for courtship in this clunky metaphor are sovereignty and myth. From the time of Caesar to the dawn of the Middle Ages, the great empire of Rome struggled to subdue the far-flung island of Britannia. The prize sought by both the invading imperialists and the defending natives was sovereignty, 
imperium in the Latin tongue. For the Romans, this meant control over a colony. For the Britons, this meant freedom. At some point in this fight over sovereignty, some Roman myth was deposited into the British psyche, and even long after the Romans fled Britannia and lost their empire, the British continued to tell the tale of how their first king, Brutus, was descended from the Roman hero Aeneas. Britons told tales of King Arthur, descended from Brutus, Myths which described Arthur's total sovereignty over the whole of Britain went a long way in shaping the British self-consciousness. First, there was Nennius's 9th-century Historia Britonum, then Geoffrey of Monmouth's 12th-century Historia Regum Britanniae, and then Thomas Mallory's 15th-century Le Mort d'Arthur. Britain's Golden Age tale is a myth about sovereignty. In 1533, as the Protestant Reformation swept across Europe, English sovereignty was defined as wholly distinct from the external authority of the Roman Catholic Church. The king was truly master of his domain. The ultimate coming together of Britain's old myth with this new idea of total sovereignty led to the conception of the British Empire. The conception of the British Empire occurred between 1547 and 1606. This was covered in Part 2 of this series. Following King Henry VIII's declaration of complete and total sovereignty over England, interested parties began to cry out for the unification of England, Scotland, and Wales. Most notably, this call came from the king's brother-in-law, Edward Seymour, Duke of Somerset, who professed his belief that the distinctions between English, Scottish, and Welsh should all be dissolved so that a new sovereign nation might arise. In 1547, he became the first to call this entity the Empire of Great Britain. There were many who agreed with the good duke, and those who did were often inclined to use the old myths of Britain united under its old kings, such as Arthur and Brutus to justify their position. If the legends were studied properly, the idea went, one could see that a. sovereignty over the whole of Britain rightfully belonged to the English royal family, and b. unity was the only way to return to Golden Age status. The greatest exponent of this argument was John Dee, aide to Henry VIII's daughter, Queen Elizabeth, not the current one. By studying all materials available to him, including the accounts of the old myths, Dee provided what he considered to be proof that Elizabeth was sovereign over England, that England was sovereign over Britain, and that Britain was sovereign over all of the North Atlantic islands, almost all of North America, and much of the Arctic Ocean. With its potential limits conceived of and defined by John Dee, the British Empire could at last begin to manifest, to gestate. The following stages in the development of the British Empire will be briefly assessed in this, the concluding episode of this series. The gestation of the British Empire occurred between 1607 and 1706. It was during this period that the empire began to peek out from the realm of ideas and manifest in the physical world. 
1607, James Fort, later to be renamed Jamestown, the first permanent English settlement in the New World, was established, soon followed by the colonies of Plymouth and Williamsburg. Even despite a devastating revolutionary war in England, which briefly obliterated the monarchy, the commercial colonial cellular makeup, which would make the formal empire possible, coalesced over the course of this century. The assembly of this makeup, I contend, was largely the result of a drastic shift in epistemology, that is, the philosophy of how things come to be known. This new, scientific, materialist epistemology served as the placenta for the gestating empire, nourishing it until its birth in the final years of the Stuart dynasty. The birth of the British Empire occurred in 1707. This came as England and Scotland merged legally and formally into one single solitary nation, the Kingdom of Great Britain. Up until this point, Britishness had largely been a rhetorical construct used by predominantly English imperialists to endow their colonial activities with some greater mythic significance. Now, with the existence of an actual nation of Britain, the empire could at last truly be called British. Some historians have separated the life of the empire into distinct phases— into wholly distinct empires, in fact. The first British Empire refers to that empire which was primarily concerned with American colonialism. This first empire began in 1707, though some push this date back to 1607 or even 1583 to include the exclusively English endeavors in the New World. It's more widely agreed, however, that this empire came to an end in 1783, when the British finally lost the 13 American colonies. Thus, the second British Empire arose as imperialists shifted their focus from the Western world to the Eastern world. A third British Empire was posited in the early 20th century by the Oxford scholar Alfred Zimmern. Zimmern, who would go on to be Carol Quigley's inside source for his seminal text Tragedy and Hope, employed James Harrington's old term Commonwealth to soften the rhetorical blow of empire, a term which had fallen out of favor by that time, and fiercely advocated for what we now call liberal internationalism, the theory that the liberal forces of the world, primarily the English-speaking nations, ought to form trans-governmental bodies and coalitions to rid the world of illiberality by means of military intervention if necessary, in order to make the world safe for democracy. The British Empire officially retired sometime in the 20th century. It's not clear exactly when. Perhaps it was as early as 1945. Maybe it was as late as 1997. What we do know is that it retired to some place in the northeastern United States, where, though out of the limelight, it continues to lead a very active life. Chapter 2. Kiwitatum ad Sabatum Following its birth in 1707, the Empire of Great Britain became the spearhead of global modernity. This is due, in no small degree, 
to what it underwent in its century of gestation. But let's leave the birthing metaphor for another, more mythological one. As we've seen, the empire arose in the aftermath of the Middle Ages as a project to extend Tudor sovereignty across the Atlantic for the joint sake of Protestantism and commercialism, those twin serpents in the creation tale of the modern world. If Protestantism and commercialism were the Apsu and Tiamat, the Eros and Chaos of modernity, then the god they spawned, who would be lord of the modern age, was progress. Before the early modern period, which was roughly from 1500 to 1750, theories of history tended to be rhythmic or cyclical, and these cycles of history depended just as much, if not more, on negative degeneration as they did on positive progress. The ancient Greek poet Hesiod sang of a continually falling human race, much like the Hindus told of the Yuga cycle, in which our present era is the low point. Plato and Aristotle wrote that political regimes tend towards decay, not improvement, and at some point, the collective consciousness spawned the all-too-common meme of strong men make good times, good times make weak men, weak men make bad times, bad times make strong men, etc. The historical narratives that were most relevant to the Western world were probably the biblical stories of the rise and fall and rise again of the Hebrew people. Cyclical history is on full display in the Old Testament, Time and time again, the Israelites fall out of favor with God, their society degenerates, and then they're enslaved. Then God, speaking through a prophet, offers them salvation if only they accept the pious life. They're then freed from their troubles and blessed for a while, until the cycle repeats itself again and again. Notice that the positive upswing in this formulation isn't due to humanity's own innovation. God and God alone is the source of positive progress. Human hubris leads only to degradation and decay. With the rise of Christianity came linear history. The world had a definitive beginning, as chronicled in Genesis, and a definitive end, as foretold in Revelation. Still, the end and ultimate regeneration of the world had virtually nothing to do with the actions of the human race. The end comes suddenly and catastrophically, and is entirely under the direction of God. Modernity turned this formulation on its head. The Protestant Reformation challenged medieval Catholic dogma, in some cases even that which said man could do nothing but wait for God to provide spiritual and social salvation. Commercialism and technological innovation demonstrated that man's suffering could be ameliorated by man himself. No miracle was needed for the improvement of the human condition. Thus, the prospect of positive, progressive, linear history became, and remains, the animating force of the modern world. From its very beginning, the Empire of Great Britain was dedicated to spreading Protestantism, commercialism, and technology around the world. Arising at exactly the right point in history, the British Empire became the first engine of global, progressive, 
modernization. In this new age, the age of global Britannia, progress was to be the force which would collide with medieval Catholicism. Progress would offer a new sort of salvation, salvation based not on faith in Christ and in the sacraments, but faith in scientific materialism. But how could such a novel, radical approach be tolerated? To facilitate the massive mental shift from medieval to modern, the very way people thought had to be changed. A new, scientific epistemology would deliver humankind from scholastic stagnation into something like Harrington's earthly Sabbath, a society of rest and leisure and bounty. The promise of progress the promise of the modern world, is nothing less than a man-made scientific utopia. And this promise, as well as the new epistemology which would make it possible, were first made explicit in the highest echelons of the early British Empire. Chapter 3. The Guiding Spirit in Colonization Scheme the origins of this futurist's utopia are shrouded in irony. First, it came, of all places, out of the court of King James, a fairly zealous Christian who's still best remembered for the creation of the authorized version of the Bible, the so-called King James Version. Secondly, the modern utopia came from the mind of a man who, in terms of contemporary politics, was viciously pragmatic. If John Dee had been Elizabeth's Merlin, then Francis Bacon was James's John Dee. Like Dee, Bacon is remembered for everything but his role in fostering the British Empire. In Bacon's case, this does make some sense. As was discussed in Episode 4 of this podcast, it was Bacon who first articulated a version of the process which would later be known as the scientific method, just as it was he who first predicted the technological developments made possible by the use of such a method. It's easy to see how his politics fall by the wayside. Nevertheless, his scientific evangelism goes hand in hand with his imperial attitude. Born in the heart of London in 1561, Francis Bacon grew up in the golden age of Elizabeth's England. At age 21, he went to work for Her Majesty's court. He would remain in government service for nearly four decades. During this time, the colonial project began, and Bacon did his part to extend the influence of his master's sovereignty. In 1609, he consulted the Virginia Company in the drafting of their second charter. The following year, he helped to incorporate the Newfoundland Company and then, in 1612, the Northwest Passage Company. In 1618, he bought in to the British East India Company. Perhaps more importantly, Bacon concocted his own imperial philosophy, a Machiavellian approach to politics similar to the hard-nosed, tough-luck neoconservatism of our own day. Bacon understood that, perhaps with some few exceptions, political power isn't really based on succession or virtue. It's based on military strength and violence. Quote, the conqueror hath power of life and death over his captives, and therefore, where he giveth them themselves, he may reserve upon such a gift what service and subjection he will. Unquote. 
This political reality, he says, is, quote, evident to be natural and more ancient than law, unquote. A state, said Max Weber in 1919, quote, upholds a claim to the monopoly of the legitimate use of physical force, unquote. Modern libertarians and anarchists often repeat this axiom, though they tend to omit the word legitimate. To Lord Bacon, the legitimization of the state must come after it has applied adequate force to a populace. To Bacon, royal lineage and noble titles and all those things which grant a ruler legitimacy are in fact just covers. The ritual of statecraft is a big ruse to disguise the fact that all politics is conquest. As an example of this fact, Bacon cites the strategy of William the Conqueror. Quote, William himself, commonly called the Conqueror, howsoever he used and exercised the power of a conqueror to reward his Normans, yet he forbore to use that claim in the beginning, but mixed it with a titulary pretense grounded upon the will and designation of Edward the Confessor. Unquote. Though the great William is remembered as a conqueror, and in fact he was a conqueror, even he appealed to the commonly held political traditions of the time to legitimize his reign in the public mind. Likewise, Bacon cites the case of Henry VII, Henry Tudor, who bested Richard III at the Battle of Bosworth and wrested the English throne from the House of Plantagenet. Henry went through endless troubles to legitimize his claim to the crown, though in truth, his power stemmed only from his sword. According to Bacon, the wise king rules as a conqueror while never admitting that he in fact is a conqueror. This principle extends to imperial colonies as well. They ought to be ruled by a small group of all-powerful executives. Of these governors, Bacon insists that they, quote, have commission to exercise martial laws, unquote. The function of colonial martial law is twofold. One, top-down administration will keep the colony running smoothly, and two, internal rebellion will be easily quelled. So far, Bacon has focused exclusively on hard power. However, he was intelligent enough to recognize the importance of soft power as well. In the earliest days of the Age of Enlightenment, Francis Bacon identified one of the central tenets of liberalism as a key imperial tactic. While imperialists who came before him, such as Richard Hakluyt, Samuel Purchase, and John Dee, argued that the British Empire ought to prioritize spreading Protestantism around the globe, Bacon contended that religious toleration would prove most effective. People take their religion seriously, and challenging a people's religion may spur them to revolt. In fact, he argues that religion is one of the few things that can actually turn the otherwise harmless masses into a force to be reckoned with. Quote, there is little danger from them, the masses, except it be where they have great and potent heads, or where you meddle with the point of religion. Unquote. Therefore, it stands to reason that the most effective empire will be one which is tolerant and largely secular, in order that it may capture and placate the largest number of people. 
He also maintained that the imperial project should avoid displacing native peoples, though whether this approach was due to moral scruples or to Bacon's sense of pragmatism is unclear. In Of Plantations, the very essay in which he advocated for martial law within imperial colonies, Bacon writes, quote, If you plant where savages are, do not only entertain them with trifles and jingles, but use them justly and graciously, with sufficient guard nevertheless, and do not win their favor by helping them to invade their enemies, but for their defense it is not amiss, and send oft of them over to the country that plants, that they may see a better condition than their own, and commend it when they return. Unquote. In short, entertain the natives with your fancy European toys, but don't get too cozy with them because they're tricky. Also, don't fight aggressive wars for them, but don't be afraid to help them out in defensive wars, if it'll benefit you in the long run. Finally, don't force the European way of life on them, but rather, lead by example. But what does all this amount to for Bacon? What's it all for? In a dialogue published after his death, entitled An Advertisement Touching an Holy War, Bacon has his character Martius, the Militar Man, espouse the cynical view that, while monarchs claim to be these great evangelists spreading the gospel to the heathen races, they are, in truth, out for wealth and fame. Of the Spanish conquest of the Americas, Martius says, quote, It cannot be affirmed, if one speak ingenuously, that it was the propagation of the Christian faith that was the adamant of that discovery, entry, and plantation, but gold and silver and temporal profit and glory, so that what was first in God's providence was but second in man's appetite and intention." Unquote. Likewise, of the Portuguese expeditions to Africa and Asia, he claims, quote, Neither in this was religion the principle, but amplification and enlargement of riches and dominion. Unquote. Furthermore, Bacon seemed to believe that as the empire expanded and led by example, and thus as Britishness spread round the world, more and more peoples would eventually rise to a level of participation within the empire, even the barbarous Irish. Samuel Garrett Zeitland writes in Francis Bacon on Imperial and Colonial Warfare, quote, Bacon would seem to favor the expansion over time of all of the rights of English subjects to the Irish subjects as well. If this is the model for Bacon's view of colonial government, he would seem to favor an expansive empire in which subjects in plantations, that is, colonies, may attend the English court and may ultimately share in English rights and representation. Residents of English colonial plantations would thus be equal subjects in an imperial monarchy bounded only by the relative expansion of its opponent states." Unquote. Behind the ruthless political pragmatism of Francis Bacon was a glimmer of idealism. Perhaps quite a bit more than a glimmer, in fact. And that ideal was progress, the deliberate improvement, over time, of humankind. Now let us turn to the late works of Francis Bacon, in which the dreamer steals the spotlight from the pragmatic public official. 
Chapter Four: The Passion of Lord Verulam. Verulam was the town in which King of the Britons Uther Pendragon perished, and thus it was at Verulam that destiny appointed his son Arthur to be his successor. In 1618, Francis Bacon was made the first Baron of Verulam. Two years later, just as Arthur would revolutionize British military might, Lord Verulam would revolutionize British and eventually global thought. Francis Bacon repudiated the stagnation of scholasticism and the circularity of Aristotelian deduction, which were the educational standards of his day. Instead, promoting sense experience and experimentation as the most reliable modes of epistemology, Bacon offered a new approach to philosophy, sympathizing with the naturalist pre-Socratic philosophers over the more abstract, ethically concerned Plato and Aristotle, as they had been presented by the medieval churchmen. Aristotle was himself concerned with the natural sciences. Though these aspects of his work were overshadowed by his epistemological, ethical, and political works, which could be used to justify Catholic theology, for his commitment to rebuilding European epistemology from scratch, Bacon is remembered as the progenitor of the scientific method and the father of modern science. What's often overlooked is the fact that Bacon's Novum Organum. In which he lays out his philosophy of material science, which you can hear more about in episode four of this podcast, was just one part of a much larger plan that he had—a plan for the future of civilization. This is where Bacon, the idealist, reveals himself. In 1620, the same year he published Novum Organum, Bacon sent a short treatment of his plan to King James. He offered his apology to James, admitting that he had allowed himself to become distracted from his mundane political duties. So committed was he to this new work. Bacon was convinced, however, and he said as much to James, that the import and grandiosity of his plan would more than make up for any time he had stolen from the king. What he offered was an entirely new philosophy, quote, totally new in their very kind, and yet. They are copied from a very ancient model, even the world itself and the nature of things and of the mind. Unquote. This new ancient model wouldn't be based on the long literary tradition which had upheld Western philosophy for a thousand years. Rather, it would be based on innate human reason and sense data. This new philosophy. By shifting focus from literature to natural science, would ultimately produce an entirely new account of history. Quote, a natural and experimental history, true and severe, unencumbered with literature and book learning, such as philosophy may be built upon. Such, in fact, as I shall in its proper place describe, that so at length, after the lapse of so many ages. Philosophy and the sciences may no longer float in air, but rest upon the solid foundation of experience of every kind, and the same well examined and weighed. I have provided the machine, but the stuff must be gathered from the facts of nature. Unquote. Bacon called his plan instauratio magna, the great 
instauration, sometimes translated as the Great Revival or the Great Renewal. It was to be comprised of six steps, reflecting the six days of creation described in the book of Genesis, thus symbolizing Bacon's concern not with philosophical abstractions, but with the natural, created world. In his package to King James, Bacon provided an outline of the six steps, describing the purpose of each of them. The first step, he says, is to assess and properly classify the knowledge already possessed by the human race, to organize man's mental means and prepare them for action. Quote, For I do not propose merely to survey these regions in my mind, like an augur taking auspices, but to enter them like a general who means to take possession. Before science could transform society, human knowledge ought to be reclassified and mobilized. Step two was actually Bacon's Novum Organum itself, a work outlining a whole new method of thinking about the world and for interpreting nature. The third step was to take the new categories of human knowledge and apply Bacon's new logic in order to articulate a new materialist account of the whole universe. Quote, Such a natural history as may serve for a foundation to build philosophy upon. Unquote. Bacon calls step four the ladder of the intellect. In order to sell his new scientific approach, he recognizes the need to exhibit the tangible benefits of science to the masses. Quote, Actual types and models by which the entire process of the mind and the whole fabric and order of invention from the beginning to the end in certain subjects and those various and remarkable should be set, as it were, before the eyes. Unquote. By science's fruits shall we know it. In Step 5, Bacon admits that the road to a scientific society is likely to be a long one, and thus he adopts a progressive approach in his pursuit. Mistakes will be made. New things will be learned along the way. The scientist must always be prepared to drop everything and shift directions when the evidence demands it. Finally, Step 6 is the ultimate realization of the Great Instauration a society in which the human being understands nature so well that the human being can, in fact, command nature itself. Such is Bacon's scientific vision, when Mother Nature has at last been made to kneel before man, we will have fulfilled God's plan for our race. Quote, Therefore do thou, O Father, who gavest the visible light as the first fruits of creation, and didst breathe into the face of man the intellectual light as the crown and consummation thereof, guard and protect this work, which coming from thy goodness returneth to thy glory. Thou, when thou turnest to look upon the works which thy hands had made, sawest that all was very good, and didst rest from thy labors. But man, when he turned to look upon the work which his hands had made, saw that all was vanity and vexation of spirit, and could find no rest therein. Wherefore, if we labor in thy works with the sweat of our brows, thou wilt make us partakers of thy vision and thy Sabbath. 
Humbly, we pray that this mind may be steadfast in us, and that through these our hands, and the hands of others to whom thou shalt give the same spirit, thou wilt vouchsafe to endow the human family with new mercies. Unquote. By abandoning abstract philosophy and shifting focus to the created world, the human race may glorify God's work and eventually partake of his Sabbath. In the scientific society, humanity will at last be able to rest. In utopia, all the hard work is already done. Bacon gives a sample of what such a scientific utopia would be like in his posthumous and incomplete work of fiction, The New Atlantis, published by his friend in 1626 or 27. Set on an island in the Pacific Ocean, the short text describes the society of the good people of Bensalem and their discovery by European explorers. The populace itself is described as pious and chaste and exceedingly virtuous. Quote, it is the virgin of the world, unquote, says one inhabitant of his homeland. The Bensalemites enjoy a certain tranquility, which is strange to their European visitors. They've come to terms with nature in a way in which the old worlders clearly had not. Above all else, they valued science. At the center of the kingdom of Bensalem was a great college, and it's in the description of this institution that we see Bacon's forecast for the technological future of civilization. The great institute had two names, the College of the Six Days Works, echoing Bacon's concern with the created material world, and Solomon's House, named for the Bensalemites' ancient king, Solomon, who was himself named for that wise old king of the Israelites, Solomon, son of David. Here, in this massive laboratory university, experts in the natural sciences bent the created world to their will. These hidden masters of Bensalem developed synthetic plants and foods, medicines and vaccines. They crafted advanced weapon systems and bred animal chimeras. They experimented with optical and audio devices, learned to simulate taste and smell, and they built flying machines and submarines and even perpetual motion machines. Such are the fruits of Francis Bacon's scientific society which he promised to future generations way back in the 1620s. To summarize the purpose of Solomon's house, and, in reality, to summarize the entirety of his great instauration project itself, Bacon has one of his Ben Salemites state confidently, quote, The end of our foundation is the knowledge of causes and secret motions of things, and the enlarging of the bounds of human empire, to the effecting of all things possible. Unquote. There, in a sentence, is the beginning and the ends of the modern scientific society. Though Bacon would die before either the New Atlantis or the Great Instauration could be completed, his partial tale of Bensalem inspired subsequent generations to pursue his vision for a new world order, and in effect, carry out the great instauration for him. In late 1660, a real-life College of the Six Days Works was founded in England. 
the Royal Society. Francis Bacon was the Royal Society's guiding light, and his fictional college was its ethereal predecessor. An engraving of Bacon himself appeared on the frontispiece of the Society's official history, written in 1667 by Thomas Spratt. In this history, Bacon is described as the group's Moses, who, quote, led us forth at last, unquote. As decades turned into centuries, Bacon's scientific epistemology would uproot more traditional systems of thought. The material knowledge and technological development which science spawned was undeniable, and it served as the novel engine of British expansion. This scientific revolution eventually gave way to an age of political revolution. An entirely new society, based solely on Enlightenment principles, which would go on to boast all of the technological achievements foretold of in the New Atlantis, was founded exactly 150 years after the death of Francis Bacon. Writes William Hepworth Dixon in his personal history of Lord Bacon, quote, The United States can also claim among their master role of founders the not less noble name of Francis Bacon. Will the day come when, dropping such feeble names as Troy and Syracuse, the people of the great republic will give the august and immortal name of Bacon to one of their splendid cities? Unquote. Writes Peter Dawkins in his brief historical sketch of Bacon's life, quote, During the early Jacobean period, that is, the reign of King James, Francis had become directly involved with the Virginia Company and its schemes to colonize North America, sitting on its council together with the Earls of Pembroke and Montgomery, and the Earl of Southampton. Moreover, Francis was largely responsible for drawing up, in 1609 and 1612, the two charters of the government for the Virginia colony. These charters were the beginnings of constitutionalism in North America and the germ of the later Constitution of the United States of America. Unquote. Thomas Jefferson, author of the Declaration of Independence, clearly saw the influence of Bacon upon the modern era. Quote, I consider Francis Bacon, John Locke, and Isaac Newton as the three greatest men that have ever lived, without any exception, and as having laid the foundation of those superstructures which have been raised in the physical and moral sciences. Unquote. Chapter 5. Intermezzo. A Modern Solution. In 1707 came the Acts of Union, merging England and Scotland into one power, and thus officially marking the birth of the Empire of Great Britain. At that time, British possession of the New World was hardly limited to just Drogio and Estotaland, Labrador and Baffin Island, nor was it limited to the famous 13 colonies— by 1775, the Crown owned almost all of Canada, much of what would soon become the United States, with holdings stretching as far west as modern Louisiana, and parts of Central and South America. 
Fifty years earlier, in 1720, the British East India Company surpassed its Dutch equivalent, making the British Company the dominant colonial power on the Indian subcontinent. In 1757, the company's army defeated the forces of the Mughal emperor and his French East India Company allies. For the century that followed, the British East India Company would maintain sovereign rule over India. During the 18th century, a period which is remembered as the first British Empire, the visions of Richard Hakluyt, Humphrey Lloyd, and John Dee came to pass. Rather, these visions were surpassed. Britannia was a global power, animated by the technological vision of Francis Bacon and the commercial vision of John Locke. To accomplish this marvelous feat of organization, a rather unique technology was employed with great success by the young empire, a technology quite at home in this new, modern, progressive age. The spread of the British Empire required mountains of bullets and led to mountains of corpses, to be sure. However, sheer violence alone could never suffice to administer this historic state. As Lord Bacon had suggested in the early 17th century, what was needed was a soft power solution to the problem of world domination. In parts one and two of this series, I have speculated that both the Roman and British empires deliberately blurred the lines between their own myths and those of the cultures they sought to colonize in order to foster a sense of camaraderie. In part one, I suggested that the Romans may have deliberately passed their own legendary figure Aeneas off as the ancestor of the Britonic folk hero Brutus. In part two, I wondered if the British might have done the same thing by crediting their mythical King Arthur with the achievements of the real-life Norse explorer Eric the Red. Now, in part three, with the birth of the first British Empire, I can tell you that the deliberate melding of diverse mythic and religious traditions to manufacture a sense of universal brotherhood is no longer a matter of mere speculation. And the very tool that would perform this function would also facilitate, long before the telegraph, the communication of men thousands of miles apart, and before the railroad, it would move men from nation to nation and home again. And the name of this technology, which was integral to the proliferation of the vast British Imperium, was Freemasonry. And its first ever Grand Lodge was established in London in 1717, just ten years after the union of England and Scotland and the formal creation of Great Britain. Chapter 6. Enlightened Empire Craft Despite the endless books and articles written on the subject, the origins of Freemasonry remain shrouded in mystery. So much has been said, and so little has been proven, that trying to really dig into the issue here would be fruitless. Still, a little bit of historical context may help clarify the function of Freemasonry. Whether it developed out of medieval stonemasons' guilds, or if it had originally been an organized troop of non-guild masons, or if it had started as a society of mutual aid and protection for fugitive Knights Templar, as some have claimed, 
one thing is most definitely clear. Freemasonry is old. Before the, dare I say, official doctrine of Freemasonry was laid down by Dr. James Anderson in his 1723 Constitutions for the Grand Lodge of England, we find a series of documents now referred to as the Old Charges, written by and for fraternities of stonemasons. The oldest of the Old Charges, the Regius Manuscript, dates back to 1390. The Old Charges, as well as Anderson's Constitution of 1723, mystically rewrite the history of the human race, emphasizing the role of alleged initiates into the sacred and universal craft of geometry. According to Masonic lore, knowledge of this sacred geometry is the birthright of all mankind, its principles having been, quote, written on the heart, unquote, of Adam by God in Eden. However, since the fall of man, this divine knowledge has been occulted and secretly passed on through the ages by a series of adepts from various cultures and creeds. The list of grand masters of this mystery tradition includes the likes of Moses, Pythagoras, Plato, and, of course, the legendary builder of Solomon's temple, Hiram Abiff. The purpose of preserving this ancient tradition is to, ostensibly, complete the great work of the ages and restore the divinity in man. Implicit in Freemasonry is the injunction that human beings, through their actions, may better themselves and the wider world. Cultivation of the individual and progressive reform of society, these are the clarion calls of Freemasonry and of modernity. By the time it went public with the creation of the Grand Lodge of London in 1717, this modern force that is Freemasonry had already carved out its own underground across the British Isles. Becoming a member was simple enough. You had to be a free man, and you had to believe in a supreme being. This opened up potential membership to Jews, Muslims, all of the various Christian denominations, and, eventually, even the polytheistic Hindus at the fringes of the empire. The implication of this inclusiveness was profound. While each culture arrives at a different image of the divine, all are, in effect, grasping at the same God, the great architect of the universe. In the 1989 book Workmen Unashamed, the testimony of a Christian Freemason, Christopher Hafner summarizes the phenomenon thusly, quote, Now imagine me standing in lodge with my head bowed in prayer between Brother Mohammed Bokhari and Brother Arjun Melwani. To neither of them is the great architect of the universe perceived as the Holy Trinity. To Brother Bokhari, he has been revealed as Allah. To Brother Melwani, he is probably perceived as Vishnu. Since I believe that there is only one God, I am confronted with three possibilities. They are praying to the devil, whilst I am praying to God. They are praying to nothing, as their gods don't exist. They are praying to the same God as I, yet their understanding of his nature is partly incomplete, as indeed is mine. 1 Corinthians 13.12 
it is without hesitation that I accept the third possibility. Unquote. As Anderson put it in the very first charge of his Constitution, the Freemason is bound, quote, to that religion in which all men agree, leaving their particular opinions to themselves, that is, to be good men and true, unquote. This syncretic, distinctly modern approach to religion fostered in Masonic lodges the concept of cosmopolitanism. Not only were all men followers of the same religion, all men were also members of the same global society. Writes Anderson, quote, We are of all nations, tongues, kindreds, and languages. Unquote. Such is the theory behind Freemasonry. But what of the application? Civilization, culture, good taste, good breeding. These were blessings enjoyed by only a minority of the Earth's inhabitants, and yet, according to this worldview, they were the birthright of all men. And given that the whole world is but one community, and given that in a community those who are well-off are obliged to lift up those who are downtrodden, the logic of cosmopolitanism demanded that the pinnacle of human achievement, the British Empire, extend itself and embed itself into the farthest and wildest regions of the planet for the sake of the human race. The colonization of India is probably the most notable case study. In 1730, just 13 years after the founding of the Grand Lodge of London, the Provincial Grand Lodge of Calcutta was established by Freemasons in the ranks of the British East India Company. The foundation of a provincial lodge in the colony and the subordinate local lodges which followed not only signified the presence of British culture, it also served a very practical purpose. Freemasons in India at that time would have been almost exclusively company merchants or military men, agents of imperialism who traveled far and often. With the presence of a network of lodges on the frontier, no matter where one of these fellow travelers went, he could always find a brother. According to Simone Deschamps, in the article From Britain to India, Freemasonry as a Connective Force of Empire, quote, The British who were sent to serve under the banner of the East India Company were well aware of the benefits that could be derived from being a Mason. The fact many of them joined a lodge on the very eve of their departure for India tends to confirm the practical nature of their initiative. The circumstances in which Sir Charles Napier, one-time commander-in-chief and then-governor of the province of Sindh, 1843-1847, was initiated into Freemasonry are quite representative of this trend. The minutes of his initiation in Doyle's Lodge of Fellowship No. 86, Guernsey, in June 1807, read as follows. Emergency Meeting Major Charles James Napier entered, that is, initiated into the first degree of Freemasonry, passed, moved through the second degree, and raised, given the third degree of Master Mason, he being about to leave the island. 
In fact, Napier sought Masonic membership on the eve of embarking for Lisbon, where he was to integrate the 50th Infantry Division. He most likely knew how beneficial it would be in the long military career ahead of him. Unquote. Jessica Harland Jacobs, author of the book on the subject, Builders of Empire, Freemasons and British Imperialism, 1717-1927, writes in her article, All in the Family, Freemasonry and the British Empire in the Mid-19th Century, quote, Freemasonry quickly took root throughout the expanding empire. From their metropolitan bases, the Grand Lodges of England, Ireland, and Scotland oversaw the administration of an ever-growing network of lodges that stretched from Barbados to Bermuda and from Montreal to Melbourne. Membership in the Brotherhood gave the Mason access to this global network of brethren pledged to offer fraternal love, spiritual fellowship, conviviality, and even financial support. Unquote. Its fitness to perform as an organizational technology for the proliferation of global empire is written into the very structure of Freemasonry. There are three basic types or tiers of Freemasonic Lodge, Grand Lodge, Provincial Grand Lodge, and Local Lodge. One might think of these as being analogous to the three levels of federated government, national, regional, and municipal. The Grand Lodge sets the prime directive, and the local lodge carries it out on the ground, while the Provincial Grand Lodge acts as an intermediary between the two. In such a federative system, no local lodge is in danger of isolation from the center Grand Lodge, being subordinated to a Provincial Grand Lodge. At the same time, the local lodge maintains a practical degree of autonomy and therefore adaptability to regional circumstances. An important variant of the local lodge was the military or regimental lodge. By 1800, every British army regiment had its own mobile Masonic lodge. This allowed active Masons to disseminate the craft abroad, as they inevitably left behind permanent local lodges for incoming troops, merchants, and tourists alike. As these British brothers came and went, they could carry important information on to the next lodge in their journey, be it in the colonies or back home. In this regard, Freemasonry was used as a military intelligence agency. To further elucidate the function of Freemasonry as an imperial technology, consider its acceptance of the colonized. In theory, membership in the craft hinged only on whether or not one was born free and whether or not one believed in a god. In practice, things worked out a bit differently. Despite the cosmopolitan ideal of universal brotherhood, no Indian was allowed membership in Lodge until 1775, a full 45 years after the first Provincial Grand Lodge was founded in Calcutta. This means that that entire time, a secret fraternity of foreign merchants and soldiers was operating in India with the explicit intention of taking the country over. As incredible as this may be, consider that the second Indian Mason wasn't accepted until 1812, almost 40 years after the first was accepted. 31 years after this, in 1843, 
a lodge was founded especially for native Indian Masons. However, all of these Indian Masons up to this point were Muslim. None were Hindu. No practitioner of India's native religion was permitted to join the craft until 1857, 127 years after Freemasonry arrived in India. Hindus were so long denied access on the grounds that they didn't believe in a supreme being. They had a multitude of gods, and this was a deal-breaker for the British, the self-appointed administrators of the one religion of the Global Brotherhood. Still, though they restricted native membership for quite a long time, Freemasons acted as agents of progress, maintaining a very public presence in their conquered land, currying favor with local communities, and extolling the virtues of cosmopolitan brotherhood, if not actually practicing them. Over time, the presence of an exclusively or near-exclusively British administrative class became normalized, and the organizational force of Freemasonry facilitated the imperial management of India by certain accepted individuals. But despite its unparalleled utility as an imperial force, the organizational power of Freemasonry also had a hand in dealing the British Empire one of its harshest blows. As in India, the Masonic Lodge system had facilitated the rapid colonization of America. Yet at the very center of the American Revolution against the Empire, a revolution which resulted in the end of the first British Empire, was a small cadre of Freemasons. Of the 56 signatories of the Declaration of Independence, eight were Masons. Of the 39 men who signed the American Constitution, 13 were Masons. The Boston Tea Party was organized in St. Andrew's Lodge above the Green Dragon Tavern. George Washington was a Freemason. Brother Ben Franklin was the first person to publish Anderson's Constitutions in the New World. So how is it that we find the imperial technology of Freemasonry at the center of American independence? First, the actual impact of Freemasonry as an institution upon the American Revolution seems to have been exaggerated over the years by both Masons and Anti-Masons, the former attempting to take credit for the founding of America, and the latter trying to depict the founding of America as some sort of ancient satanic conspiracy. Second, just because a given tool may have a certain intended use doesn't mean that people won't ever use it differently. As Neil Postman argues in his 1992 book Technopoly, The Surrender of Culture to Technology, nobody can ever predict exactly what effects a new technology will have on individuals and societies. The organizational tool that is Freemasonry ought not to be viewed any differently. Third, it could be argued that the principles of Freemasonry aligned more closely with the Patriots than with the British Loyalists. America was to be a political laboratory for the modern world, where humanity's potential would be realized, a new Atlantis forged on the metaphysics of religious freedom and cosmopolitanism. As Thomas Paine wrote in Common Sense, quote, The cause of America is in a great measure the cause of all mankind. Unquote. 
the cause of America, the cause of Freemasonry, are in great measure the cause of progressive modernity. That said, despite whatever loose ideological parallels may be drawn between the craft and the founding of the United States, at this point it seems to me that the technology of Freemasonry had a much more significant role in colonizing America than it did in freeing America. Of course, that is always subject to amendment. Following the disintegration of the Western-focused First British Empire and the rise of the Eastern-focused Second British Empire, Freemasonry remained a critical asset to the agents of Global Britannia. However, every tool is rendered obsolete eventually. Even the sharpest sword grows dull. By the end of the 19th century, it became clear to one of Britain's most notorious imperialists that Freemasonry was no longer up to the task. And this young, ambitious imperialist took it upon himself to address these shortcomings and, in effect, replace Freemasonry, in order to establish the sort of world order worthy of his goddess, Britannia. Chapter 7 A Confession of Faith In 1877, a 24-year-old mason and up-and-coming diamond magnate, financed by none other than N.M. Rothschild and Sons, penned a document entitled Confession of Faith. That young man's name was Cecil John Rhodes, future governor of South Africa and namesake of the colony of Rhodesia. And in this document, Rhodes revealed his belief in a global British utopia and offered his strategy for attaining such a society. Rhodes expressed in no uncertain terms his conviction that British racial and cultural supremacy granted the empire rightful sovereignty over, really, the whole planet, essentially. He writes, quote, I contend that we are the finest race in the world, and that the more of the world we inhabit, the better it is for the human race. Just fancy those parts that are at present inhabited by the most despicable specimens of human beings. What an alteration there would be if they were brought under Anglo-Saxon influence. Look again at the extra employment a new country added to our dominions gives. I contend that every acre added to our territory means in the future birth to some more of the English race who otherwise would not be brought into existence— Added to this is the absorption of the greater portion of the world under our rule simply means the end of all wars. Africa is still lying ready for us. It is our duty to take it. It is our duty to seize every opportunity of acquiring more territory, and we should keep this one idea steadily before our eyes that more territory simply means more of the Anglo-Saxon race, more of the best, the most human, most honorable race the world possesses." Unquote. Cecil Rhodes's Confession of Faith is one of the most explicitly utopian documents in history. 
According to Rhodes, both the security and prosperity of the whole human race are contingent upon the empire's ability to cover the entire world with the British flag. Having not minced any words in defining his ends, Rhodes then describes the means. Quote, I look into history and I read the story of the Jesuits. I see what they were able to do in a bad cause, and I might say under bad leaders. At the present day, I become a member of the Masonic Order. I see the wealth and power they possess, the influence they hold, and I think over their ceremonies. And I wonder that a large body of men can devote themselves to what at times appear the most ridiculous and absurd rites without an object and without an end. The idea, gleaming and dancing before one's eyes like a will-of-the-wisp, at last frames itself into a plan. Why should we not form a secret society with but one object? The furtherance of the British Empire and the bringing of the whole uncivilized world under British rule, for the recovery of the United States, for making the Anglo-Saxon race but one empire. To forward such a scheme, what a splendid help a secret society would be, a society not openly acknowledged, but who would work in secret for such an object. What has the main cause of the success of the Romish Church the fact that every enthusiast, call it if you like, every madman, finds employment in it. Let us form the same kind of society, a church for the extension of the British Empire, a society which should have members in every part of the British Empire working with one object and one idea. We should have its members placed at our universities and our schools and should watch the English youth passing through their hands just one, perhaps in every thousand, would have the mind and feelings for such an object. He should be tried in every way. He should be tested whether he is endurant, possessed of eloquence, disgraceful of the petty details of life, and if found to be such, then elected and bound by oath to serve for the rest of his life in his country." He should then be supported, if without means, by the society and sent to that part of the empire where it was felt he was needed. In every colonial legislature, the society should attempt to have its members prepared at all times to vote or speak and advocate the closer union of England and the colonies, to crush all disloyalty and every movement for the severance of our empire. The society should inspire and even own portions of the press, for the press rules the mind of the people. The society should always be searching for members who might, by their position in the world, by their energies or character, forward the object, but the ballot and test for admittance should be severe." Unquote. Not only is Rhodes's Confession of Faith one of the most explicitly utopian documents, it's one of the most overtly conspiratorial documents in history, too. Yet, despite the fact that the document reads like the ravings of a madman, his faith paid off. The secret network, dedicated to the expansion of the empire and the recovery of the United States, was established and quietly insinuated itself into the centers of power around the globe. 
while Freemasonry had largely degraded into a gentleman's club with some networking utility, opened to so wide a public that its secretive pretenses were shattered, Rhodes's organization, writes historian Carol Quigley, quote, has been able to conceal its existence quite successfully, and many of its most influential members, satisfied to possess the reality rather than the appearance of power, are unknown even to close students of British history. Unquote. This secret network was extensively documented in the 1960s by Georgetown University historian Carol Quigley, who was given temporary access to the group's records and maintained a correspondence with former group member Alfred Zimran. Since Quigley's two very important books on the subject, Tragedy and Hope and The Anglo-American Establishment, Independent researchers such as Richard Grove and Kevin Cole have continued to track the Rhodes-inspired secret society through the late 19th century and on into the 20th. Be sure to check the show notes. In sum, this network consisted of the most powerful and influential British imperialists. It infiltrated the most prominent centers of media, economics, and politics, and established working groups to achieve its ends, including the Royal Institute for International Affairs, the Council on Foreign Relations, and the Rhodes Scholarship, introduced in the last will and testament of Cecil Rhodes as a mechanism for selecting and grooming the next generation of managers of the global empire. Notable American Rhodes scholars include Transportation Secretary Pete Buttigieg, former Secretary of Defense Ashton Carter, media personalities Rachel Maddow and George Stephanopoulos, and Carol Quigley's own protege, President Bill Clinton. Chapter 8. The New Round Table The culture of the British Empire reached its zenith in the very age in which Rhodes and his ilk set out to save the world. The 19th century was a time of unremitting progress. Industry boomed, locomotives raced from city to city, and, of course, social consciousness was on the rise. Provided one was well off, one had every reason to believe that Britain was the pinnacle of civilized society and that its imperialism had made it so. Thus, during the Victorian and Edwardian eras, the height of Pax Britannica, there was something of a cultural revival in Britain, a sudden concern with those things traditionally British, as a celebration for having progressed so far. For instance, Francis Bacon was of particular interest to Victorian-era thinkers, for he was, in essence, the intellectual father of the modern, progressive, technological society that they now enjoyed. Bacon understood that man's condition would only improve when man himself took command of the natural world, when he expanded the bounds of human empire, as it were, to include the warp and woof of creation. The most groundbreaking scientific leap in the 19th century came in 1859, when Mr. John Murray of London published Charles Darwin's On the Origin of Species by Means of Natural Selection, or The Preservation of Favored Races in the Struggle for Life. 
the resultant theory of evolution quickly became the metaphysic underlying British imperial society. Just as Bacon, 250 years earlier, had excoriated the scholastics for their stagnant philosophy, advocating instead for a dynamic and progressive philosophy, Darwinism challenged the rigidity of biological creation. Life itself is dynamic and progressive. Just as science put the material world under human control, evolution put the biological world under human control. Eugenics, the practice of selecting who may and may not breed in order to progressively guide evolution with the ultimate intent of perfecting the human race, was introduced in 1883 by Charles Darwin's cousin Francis Galton. The function of eugenics was twofold. It would, by means of gradual extinction, sanitize the most wretched elements of society, while simultaneously it would preserve and improve its upper echelons, which is why certain prominent British families, such as the Darwins, Huxleys, Galtons, and Wedgwoods, began to interbreed with one another, preserving the favored race, you see. A commitment to eugenics was commonly held by those who considered themselves to be among the race's elites. Proponents of eugenics included H.G. Wells, George Bernard Shaw, Sidney and Beatrice Webb, John Maynard Keynes, and Winston Churchill. Eugenics became popular in America as well, as the allure of a scientifically managed society animated the so-called progressive era. Only after the Second World War did eugenics fall out of popular favor in the Anglo-American world. And so the average Brit and average American remains unaware that the Nazis' eugenic policy was lifted almost entirely from British and American sources. In each society, Britain, America, and Nazi Germany, the purpose of eugenics was to breed a ruling class distinct from and superior to the subject class. The language of eugenics is unmistakable in Cecil Rhodes's Confession of Faith. He sought the proliferation of the British race around the world, reckoning this could only do the planet good. And only the best of the British, the best of the best, would be suited to administer such a sublime, scientifically sanctioned global government from behind the scenes. They would never see the spotlight, nor be met by crowds of cheering subjects. They would rule quietly, humbly, but effectively. Such men would have to be truly noble, well-tempered, prudent, strong, and wise. They would have to be manifestly British. They would have to be like unto a new Arthurian round table. Francis Bacon wasn't the only piece of British history being celebrated in the 19th century. There was also renewed interest in Britain's favorite hero, that champion of the Golden Age, King Arthur. In 1859, the year of Darwin's Origin of Species, Alfred Lord Tennyson published his account of Arthur's life, The Idols of the King. It was an immediate bestseller, and for the rest of the century, Britain was ablaze with Arthurian fervor. Arthur was once again the exemplar of chivalry, and as John Dee described him three centuries earlier, 
the paragon of all human nobility. In the late 16th century, John Dee cited the Golden Age myth as a justification for the creation of an expansive British empire which would recover Arthur's old American colonies and spread itself far and wide for the benefit of humankind. Now, in the late 19th and early 20th centuries, as Britons again cheered for Arthur, a secretive group of imperialists plotted to maximize Britain's global power. According to Rhodes in the first draft of his will, this meant, quote, the ultimate recovery of the United States as an integral part of the British Empire, the inauguration of a system of colonial representation in the imperial parliament which may tend to weld together the disjointed members of the empire, and finally, the foundation of so great a power as to render wars impossible and promote the best interests of humanity. Unquote. Beginning in 1909, seven years after the death of Cecil Rhodes, the secret society he inspired began forming local working groups among the colonies to as Quigley puts it, quote, agitate for imperial federation, unquote. Leading exponents of this movement included Lord Alfred Milner, a trustee of Rhodes's will, Philip Kerr, Lord Lothian, ambassador to the United States, and Alfred Zimran, Quigley's inside source. These secret groups they formed, these colonial lodges, were called, of course, round tables. Chapter 9. New World Order Quote, This second British Empire reached the culmination of its power and of its development in the Great War, unquote, said Roundtable member Alfred Zimran in a lecture at Columbia University in 1925. By the dawn of the 20th century, empire had become something of a dirty word. Following the First World War, at the behest of round-table member Lionel Curtis and others, the British Empire was rebranded as a Commonwealth of Nations. James Harrington's 17th-century vision of a utopic, benevolent, patristic Commonwealth was coming to fruition at long last. Zimran continues in his lecture, quote, And now a third British Empire has come into existence— new in its form, new in the conditions which it has to face within and without its borders, new even in its name. For the British Empire of 1914 has now become the British Commonwealth of Nations. Unquote. Zimran goes on to explain that the third British Empire, the Commonwealth, quote, is the largest single political community in the world, it includes within its borders one quarter of the inhabitants of the globe, of whom the vast majority are governed from London. Unquote. Moreover, he says, quote, The British Empire is not only the greatest political community in the world, it is also the most diversified. In actual population, it's not much greater than China. But, whereas China is a single, compact area, the British Empire extends all over the world and includes almost every variety of humankind, unquote. Every race, every religion, every culture 
was represented in the Commonwealth. In the 20th century, it became clear to all that the technological society had arrived at last. The long march of scientific progress, kicked off almost exactly 300 years earlier by Francis Bacon, had led not to an earthly Sabbath, but to a world war. And then another, but this time with nukes. Not a great instauration, but a great incineration. With such technological progress in terms of communication, transportation, weaponry, and the rest, society itself was transformed. Writes Carol Quigley in Tragedy and Hope, quote, The increasing offensive power of the Western weapon systems has made it possible to compel obedience over wider and wider areas and over larger numbers of peoples. Accordingly, political organizations such as the state have become larger in size and fewer in numbers. In this way, the political development of Europe over the last millennium has seen thousands of feudal areas coalesce into hundreds of principalities, and these into scores of dynastic monarchies, and finally into a dozen or more national states. The national state, its size measured in hundreds of miles, was possible only because it could apply force over hundreds of miles. As the technology of weapons, transportation, communications, and propaganda continued to develop, it became possible to compel obedience over areas measured in thousands rather than hundreds of miles, and thus over distances greater than those occupied by existing linguistic and cultural groups. It thus became necessary to appeal for allegiance to the state on grounds wider than nationalism. This gave rise in the 1930s and 1940s to the idea of continental blocs and the ideological state replacing the national state. Unquote. Material progress carried to the farthest reaches of the globe by the British Empire meant that global society itself must change. In an increasingly connected world, there must be somebody to make sure all of the children are playing fairly. One power must arise to ensure that liberalism prevails. In an age of world trade and world war, who better than the managers of the world's largest empire to helm a world civilization? Once again, Carol Quigley. Quote, the roundtable groups were semi-secret discussion and lobbying groups organized by Lionel Curtis, Philip H. Kerr, Lord Lothian, and Sir William S. Maris in 1908 to 1911. This was done on behalf of Lord Milner, the dominant trustee of the Rhodes Trust in the two decades 1905 to 1925. The original purpose of these groups was to seek to federate the English-speaking world along lines laid down by Cecil Rhodes, 1853-1902, and William T. Stead, 1849-1912, and the money for the organizational work came originally from the Rhodes Trust. By 1915, roundtable groups existed in seven countries, including England, South Africa, Canada, Australia, New Zealand, India, and a rather loosely organized group in the United States, George Lewis Beer, Walter Lippmann, Frank Adiolette, Whitney Shepardson, Thomas W. Lamont, 
Jerome D. Green, Edwin D. Canham of the Christian Science Monitor, and others. The attitudes of the various groups were coordinated by frequent visits and discussions, and by a well-informed and totally anonymous quarterly magazine, The Round Table, whose first issue, largely written by Philip Kerr, appeared in November 1910. Unquote. And now skipping ahead a bit, quote, At the end of the War of 1914, it became clear that the organization of this system had to be greatly extended. Once again, the task was entrusted to Lionel Curtis, who established in England and each dominion a front organization to the existing local roundtable group. This front organization, called the Royal Institute of International Affairs, had as its nucleus in each area the existing submerged roundtable group. In New York, it was known as the Council on Foreign Relations and was a front for J.P. Morgan and Company in association with the very small American roundtable group. The American organizers were dominated by the large number of Morgan experts, including Thomas Lamont and George Beer, who had gone to the Paris Peace Conference and there became close friends with the similar group of English experts, which had been recruited by the Milner Group. In fact, the original plans for the Royal Institute of International Affairs and the Council on Foreign Relations were drawn up at Paris. Unquote. The world of the 21st century has largely been shaped by the activities of the Round Table Network and its offshoots in the 20th century. Today's liberal internationalism, the rules-based order, the complex interdependence fostered by these private groups are, in fact, merely facades for the Third British Empire. And this latest permutation of the world's first modern empire is largely run out of and powered by the United States of America. Chapter 10 the Ends of Empire Aeneas, Brutus, Arthur, John D., Francis Bacon, Cecil Rhodes In this series, I have discussed the string of utopias, stretching back to Britain's mythic creation, which have inspired the actions of history's largest empire. What I have not discussed is the stream of corpses this empire has left in its wake, I haven't discussed its iron rule over India, nor its apartheid in South Africa. I haven't discussed Rhodes's diamond mines or the drug trade in China. I have rather chosen to tell a story less often told. The genealogy of an ideal. The utopian ends meant to justify the horrid means of global Britannia. With each century of its existence... Agents of Britain justified their hegemony by promising a new and better world. First, they would restore the golden age of Arthur and bring the true religion to the world's savages. A mere generation later, with the arrival of Lord Bacon on the scene, the empire would commit to delivering the progressive promise of science and technology to the world and to the future. In the 18th century, universal brotherhood was the ideal held by the highest minds in the empire's secret fraternity. 
In the 19th century, once science came of age, imperialists promised civilization, sanitization, and evolution in body and in craft. In the 20th century, the era of globalism, Britannia committed herself to good and orderly management. For nearly 500 years, the British Empire has claimed rightful stewardship over the Earth's resources and her people. It's a utopian claim in itself, built on an ethereal mountain of tales and promises of pasts and futures of glorious serenity. The story of Britain is a collection of stories of nowhere. Of course, the actions of the empire are very real. The atrocities are real. The impact on modern geopolitics is real. The conscious or unconscious use of utopian yarns to legitimize political and economic gain is real. These stories are where it all truly begins. Perhaps the Empire would have started without John Dee's arguments, which he based on Arthurian legend. Maybe technological society would have been pursued without Francis Bacon's plans for a great instauration and his tantalizing picture of a new Atlantis. Perhaps the new round table would have come to be without Cecil Rhodes confessing his faith in a Christ-like Britannia. Perhaps. Perhaps. But we don't live in that world. We live in the world where all of these things did happen, where all of these men spurred the empire along with their ideals of its potential. And we live in the world where the prophecies of these men startlingly resembles what actually came to pass. A world in which a young empire, fresh with its own new religion and facing off against the old universal religion, conquered the very regions of the new world an astrologer claimed belonged to an ancient fictional king. A world in which there are flying machines and gene therapies 400 years after Lord Bacon foretold of their coming in the new world. A world in which James Harrington's rhetoric about a benevolent patristic commonwealth from the 1650s became the rhetoric of history's largest empire in the 1950s. A world in which secret networks of men conspire behind the scenes to set global policy to suit their agenda and write about it for over a hundred years and are never caught because the only people who dare to call them out are just fringe conspiracy theorists. A world in which both the left and the right take for granted the virtues of Pax Anglo-Americana rules-based liberal international order as it surrounds Russia, provokes China, and lights brown men, women, and children on fire with its super-progressive unmanned flying death machines. But it's okay. It's okay because it's all to make the world a better place. It's all in pursuit of utopia. We have to get there eventually. In conclusion, I have told the long story of the British Empire, while still leaving out libraries' worth of information, to convey the importance of understanding the effects that myth and utopianism have on the shape of history. The Empire is no mere artifact, safely nestled in a time now past. It lives with us, and we must understand that despite its brutality, its promise 
was never to slaughter, to slaughter, but to save, to save. Its myths and its utopias, religious, scientific, and political, are what made it. It is for the prudent listener to be vigilant, to beware, and to be free. End of part three. Thank you.